0: This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 229. And the quote of the day is an old Chinese proverb that says, to get through the hardest journey, we need to only take one step at a time, but we must keep on stepping. Listening to the Drummers Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. beyond, beyond, beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Rafini here with another session of the Drummers Resource Podcast, and I've seemingly got all 229 episodes back up on iTunes. Before it was only the most recent 50 and now I do believe that they're all up there. So if you're having issues with it, updating, just let me know, but I think I fixed the problem. Uh, So all 229 episodes should be up there. And if they're not, let me know, and I'll get it looked at and see if I can really fix that problem. But I think it should be cool. Now, this session is brought to you by my friends at Dream Symbols, and I know it's a holiday, and I think that you guys should check out the Ignition Packs. And the Ignition Packs are a pack of Symbols that are really high quality pro level symbols, but they're priced below what you would think they would be. So they're not going to break the bank. So they're sort of economically priced, but they're made for pro players. And you can learn more about Dream and the Ignition Pack at dreamsymbols.com. Now, let's get into the conversation today. I talked to my man, Mark Powers. And Mark and I have talked a lot back and forth on social media. And he's a huge supporter of the podcast, has been for a long time. I really dig his work too. He's been gracious enough to send me some of his books that he's written. And he's written books with Alfred and has self-published some books. And he just came out with a practice log, practice journal, which I think is really, really cool. And he and I go into... The whole idea of sort of going after your dreams, figuring out how to make it work in this industry, piecing things together, whether or not you want to do this as a full-time gig or a part-time thing, and it really doesn't matter. So the principles that we talk about in, in this episode are great for that. Also, we get into some practice techniques and all sorts of stuff. and you know, Mark and I were talking on social and he was telling me about all this, you know, this book and I was, we were just kind of going back and forth. And I just said, look, man, we should just get you on the podcast because he has a ton of knowledge. He's been doing this professionally for a long time. He tours, he's a clinician, he's an educator and just filled with a ton of great knowledge. So a real honor to have him. And let's get into it with my man, Mark Powers. Mark, what's happening, man? How are you? I'm doing
1: great, man. It's an honor to be here. Uh,
0: it's great to have you. We, I feel like, I feel like we already know each other, and although we've never actually like spoke in person or anything, but we've communicated numerous times on the interwebs, and and you've sent me some books to check out, and and we've just been sort of in constant communication over the years. So great to actually sit down and chat with you.
1: Yeah, man. We definitely run in some of the same cyber circles, and I am a longtime listener of the podcast, so it's an absolute treat to get to sit down and chat with you.
0: Well, when that comes from somebody like you, that means a lot, so I I appreciate it. I really do, and you've been more than supportive, so... Um, so as, I mean, you, you sort of know how this whole thing goes. So, uh, but I want to get a little bit of your backstory for the listeners. I know that you've, you've put out a ton of books. You, you play all over the place. Um, you're an educator, you're a performer, you're an author. So let's, let's, before we get into all of that, let's give a little bit of backstory. I know that, like you said, you're from, you're in Portland, but let's, let's talk a little bit about backstory, how you got into it and how you ended up here.
1: Uh Yeah, plenty of backstory. I originally was born in Indiana, but lived all of my youth in Wisconsin and Minnesota in various towns and started playing percussion first as many people, I believe, maybe uh, used to more so than now. Uh, started off in a fifth grade band, about 10 years old, doing the regular concert band route and playing the timpani and mallets and snare drum. And eventually got into some drum set interest when I found a couple of local musicians playing. And that was up in Grand Marais, Minnesota, up in the the Northwoods up there. And eventually ended up getting out of high school a little bit early and ventured south to study at a little unaccredited music school called Music Tech, which is now McNally Smith College of Music. And I ah. believe uh Gordy Knutson and Dave Stanick uh, who I've studied with have both been on the podcast yeah
0: yeah I love I love Dave actually Gordy I'll tell I mean a quick story about Gordy uh I was he's a paisley artist and I studied under a guy named Frank Kumar and he introduced me to Gordy and did like this this clinic thing where I like demonstrated the the patterns uh, out of his book uh this right. was years ago I think I was like, 19 or something like that when I did it but Gordy's great and, and I, I actually don't know him very well at all uh but but uh but Dave Stanis is just the man I love that dude oh
1: I love those guys to death uh Dave and I are roomies every year over at PASIC so I just got to see him nice. recently and um yeah so I studied with those guys at, when I was pretty young I went went to college there when I was 16 and eventually I meandered out of there and got interested in world musics as well. So I started doing some studying overseas. I've spent some time in the past studying in Ghana and Puerto Rico, Cuba, uh, Southeast Asia, anywhere that I can get to really. And all of that stuff just gradually started leading to some playing and then teaching uh, both private lessons and a lot of group workshops in schools, corporations, correctional facilities, just about anything. And uh, Gradually led me to where I am now, out in Portland, doing a lot of those same things and just kind of gradually diversifying from there, getting into, like you said, some publishing with books and stuff. Uh, So I do a lot of of teaching, gigging, writing, and session work out here, doing recording and such.
0: So were you always, was this always your gig? I mean, this was always your full-time
1: job? It has been my full-time job for many, many years. After college, I did a variety of things, everything from working overnight shifts at a gas station to eventually my last quote-unquote job that I walked out on, and that was selling, trying anyway, to sell modular homes for a little company in northern Wisconsin. And I remember walking in and telling my boss that I was going to move further south in the state and pursue this music thing with some musicians that I had started working with. And he thought it was a rather ridiculous, irresponsible decision because uh, just of the, the money that I was starting to make there and the potential that that had. And I knew that no matter no matter whether that was the case or not, I definitely didn't have a love for doing what a lot of the coworkers around me had a love for doing and just needed to give the music thing a shot. So I kind of walked out of there and told myself that I would never again fill out a job application because I've always despised the second page where it shows employment experience that I've never really felt that what I had applied to the job that I was uh, applying for and kind of at that point realized that I was rather unemployable and I just needed to set out and make it happen on my own. And so, how old were you then? Uh, I was probably somewhere right between nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, right in there.
0: <laughs> it, it was just it was just funny hearing you say it. you're like, I think that was nineteen twenty one. Nineteen <laughs> twenty Yeah, not, I'm not that old. You look good. You look good <laughs> for how old you are, man.
1: <laughs> probably, yeah. Let's let's say I was twenty years old.
0: <laughs> you know, after the, after the Great Depression, then I had to. Uh, Move into other. <laughs> yeah, you know, young whippersnappers had to had to do it. Walk uphill both ways in the snow. So, uh, well, the thing, and the 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 reason why I asked this, and and this is extremely interesting to me, is that I've go, you know, going through, going to PASIC, going to Nam, uh, going to different percussive events, and just like being in this industry, meeting so many people that have been. In this industry, doing it full time for, you know, pretty much their entire adult life and string a bunch of things together. So and I I think one that's important to do now more than ever is that you got to have you got to have eight different things going on at the same time to, to sort of, you know, string an income together. And uh we, you and i had mentioned the Chase Jarvis interview uh, offline but you know he mentions the same thing like we're all sort of hyphens now we're all photographers slash entrepreneurs slash drummers slash you know this slash that and for for people who are listening this is a really long-winded question but for the people who are listening how do you suggest that you start to do that how do you you know it's always fascinating to be where the guy's like oh yeah man i'm a clinician and i'm a I'm, I am I play and you know, I tour and I teach and I write and I do this and I do that. How do you how do you suggest people start going down that road or, um, or getting there? How do you you know, like how do you get there? What What's some practical advice and some tactical advice you can give?
1: Well, I think that when you're not there, when you're not doing that and you want to, you have to try to be everywhere at once. Uh, and that's online and offline. And I don't think that that's a sustainable thing, nor do I think that that's something that you always you know want to be doing anyway. But uh, temporarily, until you start making more and more connections and start getting feelers out in different places so that you can diversify, I think that that's a really important thing. And uh, for me, I've always, whenever I've relocated to a new area, I've really taken a rather kind of aggressive guerrilla approach to trying to seemingly be everywhere at once. And I think it's reaching out to everybody, you know, so I think it's important to get acquainted with just about everybody in a local music community that you happen to be in. And I mean, that's meeting bands, you know, getting to know venue owners or the promoters at those venues, bloggers in the area, music critics from newspapers and magazines, uh, Hosts and musical directors at local uh, TV and you know community radio uh, stations, private lesson teachers, you know music store employees. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, uh, and I'm I'm a little bit of a, a spreadsheet freak when it comes to that sort of thing, and will actually make a spreadsheet, you know, on like Google Spreadsheet with multiple tabs and have all of these different places listed out and have a little notes column so I can keep track of who I've touched base with. And send out emails, re- you know, recording studios or just individual recording engineers in the area, um, just to let them know that you exist. Art Blakey had said years ago that you're either appearing or you're disappearing. And so I think it's important to, if, if that's your goal, to be diversifying, doing all that stuff, you have to let people know that you even want to be doing that stuff or there's no way you'll ever get the calls for it. Um, And I think today with social media and obviously email and such, it's easier than ever to do kind of that cold calling, put things out there. But I also don't, I I, I really recommend to not ever take a no in this regard as necessarily a hard and fast no, because I have found that I've approached music stores who have, Messaged me back and said that they already have somebody teaching there. And then a week or two later, I've popped by with my resume that they've gotten to see it with their own eyes and holding their hands and had that same store employee say, ah, It'd be kind of cool to have somebody like you around here once in a while. So, right. um, you know, the follow up is important. You know, it's been said that, you know, 70 plus percent of, you know, sales or, you know, transactions that, that happen often are because of the follow-up not because of that initial reach and that's just really important
0: you know it's it's funny that you mentioned that because i don't think i mean this drummer's resource would be nothing even close to what it is without without that and just in general just the the cold calling and the cold emailing and reaching out to people and collaborating and and I tell people this all the time without exaggerating like I've sent I've sent thousands and thousands and thousands of emails and guess what not everybody gets back to you a large percentage of the people don't get back to you some people don't get back to you on the first time or the second or the third I emailed Dennis Chambers probably 35 times and finally got him on the podcast last week you know what I mean Uh, the Chase Jarvis interview that we talked about took probably seven months to, to finally come to fruition. And I think that the now, and tell me if you agree or disagree that now there's a lot of microwave culture going on where it's like, well, I sent an email. it's like, you sent one email and now you're just going to, that's it. You're just going to give up, you know?
1: Absolutely. No, I I totally agree. And that's, yeah, exactly uh you know what we were saying that that follow-up is so important and and so many people won't do that in the first place i mean i think that i think that it's really common that people who are doing things accomplishing things i i find typically tend to be the sort of people who either are doing what other people won't are aren't willing to do or they're doing something for longer, or cheaper, or you know, you name it, than other people would be willing to do. And things like follow-ups are exactly that. Because, I mean, it's like doing a book pitch or anything. It's very easy to, to send a, a, a cold email to somebody, not hear a response, and kind of feel shut down, take it personally. And it's I've learned uh, that it's important, uh, especially career-wise, to not do that, and give some time, send a nice, friendly little follow-up, and I don't know how many times I've done that follow up and had someone respond as if they'd completely missed the first email, which very well might be the case, and and just outright said, "Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you you followed up. I completely spaced that, or I, I missed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's totally get together." So right. that that follow up is super important, and like you suggested, a lot of people don't do it. So
0: definitely. well, we had talked about the Tim Ferriss book that just came out. His first book, Four Hour Work Week he got declined by 27 publishers. Wow. 27 publishers. I think, uh, Howard Schultz from, from Starbucks got declined by 300 and some banks (laughs) when he first started Starbucks. I might be wrong about the number, but it's some astronomical number. Like it's a lot. It wasn't like 20 or 30. It was like 300. I think it was. Um, and it's just like you said, the, it's just a lot of times just going longer than the other people, being willing to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing. And it gets discouraging, though. So how do you how do you keep yourself from being discouraged? Um, I mean,
1: I, I guess I completely do at times. I think we all we all do. But for me, I, I find that the more the more things i have out there the more options the more possible yeses uh, might come back and there are times where i feel like i was maybe spending too much time or effort heading down a trail that's maybe kind of a dead end um but i think that you know when you have that little win in a different area that comes back um you know a that that can kind of pump you up and i also have learned that things in one area that you're pursuing tend to help things in other areas so you know it can be easily easy to get discouraged about not quite you know gigging as much as you want to or you know not getting you know recording sessions or something but then you find that if you're diversifying, each of these different things you do kind of builds credibility in this big entity that is you. And sometimes you end up getting work in one of these areas that you want to from or kind of because of indirectly something that you were doing in a different area. Um, so I, I think that's one thing over the years I've really tried to work on a lot, uh, but it's always a struggle, I think, for any artist, especially, you know, any, any of us working in the creative fields, it's tough to not get discouraged doing it. But um, I've learned to just kind of keep my head down as far as this work goes and, um, pitching ideas or, you know, anything like that. Just kind of keep my head down and keep plowing forward. And, uh, typically just because of what we were saying, the person who does do that the longest ends up, you know, seeing some fruit from it. I've just learned to kind of keep plowing through that.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, would you, Or what, how, how, what would you suggest if someone is, and it may be a hard question because you haven't been in this situation, but if someone is in a nine to five and they're like, man, I really want to make that transition. I really want to like start writing and, and start playing and start being a clinician and start being an educator. Would you, what advice would you have for them?
1: Um, I, I think that anytime, you know, regardless of what your situation is, I think that, um, you know, even if you only have a, a little bit of time available, you know, you the only reason you're not doing what you want to be doing, or if you feel like you're failing at it, that you are, it kind of comes down to one of two things. Either you're not doing anything. So you're doing nothing to drive yourself that direction, or you're just doing the wrong things. Um, and so I think that, um, if you know what, it, what you want to be doing, but not exactly how to be doing it, a great process to go through is listening out, five people who are and maybe if you're in the nine to five you're not listing you know like Thomas Pridgen or you know whoever your favorite artists are because that's that's a huge leap but you think about people in your area who maybe have recently transitioned to just full-time music or are the weekend warriors that are still getting out to play a lot more on the weekends even though they're still keeping a part or full-time job Um, and I think if you list five people that are doing it and just honestly ask yourself what they did to get there or better yet, ask them, take right. them to coffee or, you know, reach out uh, via email or phone. Um, that that's a perfect way to outline what it is that you need to be doing. And then you have to ask yourself whether you're willing to be doing those things. Um, or, you know, even before that, whether you are doing those things and if you're not, are you willing to do it? Cause if you're not willing to do it, well, maybe you don't really want to be, reaching that goal as badly as you say that you are. Um, uh, and then I, on the flip side, you know, if, if you don't really know what you want, on, you know, that would be if you totally know what you want to do, but not how on the flip side, if you don't even know what to be doing to kind of move yourself forward. Um, I always really like this idea that was put out by a coach. I think his name's Dan Sullivan. can't remember the name of his book, but, um, he talked about making a list of five or 10 of your previous previous accomplishments. And I think you can do this, whether you're working a nine to five, trying to move into music more full time, or if you're already doing it full time and just find, you know, for instance, five or 10 musical accomplishments that you've had um, or techniques that you feel you've mastered or whatever it can be playing or otherwise. And then for each one of those, just write one thing, whether it's big or small, that would essentially represent a further achievement or a further accomplishment in that area. And right there, that tells you exactly what you have to work on. Um, Hmm. so just, you know, being able to say, well, I've accomplished this. Okay. What would be me saying that I've gone a step beyond that? You know, what would be the next, a, a further achievement in that area? And you know, that is, quick way to give yourself a list of actual things to working on so that you're not doing nothing and you're not doing the wrong things
0: hmm that's I I've never heard of that before I really like it it's interesting you know I I was talking to somebody the other day and I think if you listen to the podcast you know that um, there's some I'm interested in other things besides just drumming I, I'm interested in business and media and things like that so I'm in the process of starting this or I mean, I, I guess I already have a media company, but like expanding it. And I was talking to somebody and they're like, I was like, I don't re- I don't necessarily know like where to go, what steps to take, how to how to get there. And they were like, well, how did you start Drummer's Resource? And I was like, oh, well, I did this. And I did this. and I did that. And they're like, OK, we'll just do that again. Right. And you're like, man, it's like sitting right in front of you. So if you, even if, so if you have a nine to five job and it's like, all right, how did you end up in this job? Okay. I got, I did this. I did this. And and it's like, okay, well then just do that with drumming. Right. You know, like start going to the conferences, start talking to people, start getting to know people, start cold calling people. And I, I like the, I like the saying of, you know, if you can't do it nine to five, then do it five to nine. Right. And then soon though, you know, that can change into your, into your nine to five. Absolutely. And do you think that a lot of times there's a disconnect between sort of drumming and everything else in terms of how people set goals, how people view it? I, For me, sometimes I think that, you know, if, if you're trying to get a job, everybody's like, oh, well, then I would just do these things. Or if they're trying to lose weight, they're like, oh, I would just do these things. And then they look at drumming and they sort of think that there's no... Real actionable steps. There's, it's just all fate and and it's like this big mystery of how to succeed in that business. Oh yeah,
1: I, I totally agree. I, I think the arts tend to be like that, and and there's there's a big difference sometimes just between the way people view growth in your art, you know, or just in the drumming in more of a technical sense in general, and the growth in your business. You know, so many of us love working on our, our craft doing our thing but we don't like doing the other side of stuff the marketing stuff and really when it comes down to it I think that the approach you can take on both of those in both those areas is more often than not pretty much the same you know it's not like you're completely relearning I think a lot of us don't feel like we're business types so we fear this business side of the music business and when you really get into it I find that it's it's not much different than just becoming a better player. You know, there's a lot of creativity involved and you set some goals and you lay out how and when you're going to tackle those. And it ends up really being parallel and kind of intertwined with the way you approach just the instrument itself.
0: So how do you balance those two things? How do you balance the the sort of, as, as Russ Miller would say, the art and the commerce?
1: Uh, balance time-wise. Sure, Um, can be tricky depending on how much uh, how busy I am or how much I'm traveling for sure Uh, so I definitely don't practice as much as I would like at times um, nor as much as I used to in the past when that's all I was doing and I wasn't focusing on the other side of stuff Um, but I I teach some private lessons so I end up finding time to get on uh, either an acoustic or electronic kit at the teaching studio was great Um, and uh, I was laughing because I was just recently listening to your Zorro podcast and he talked about the the dashboard playing. Um, and as he started talking about that, I was bouncing little finger control exercise off my dashboard because I was listening in the car. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I end up doing, uh, not, not that I condone that uh, behavior, but I definitely uh, end up uh, getting little finger control, just hand workout in wherever I can. I can kind of got practice pads just about everywhere. So, um, yeah, I I think that the it's, it's necessary to constantly be working on your craft, just on the technical sides of things, even just for maintenance reasons, if nothing else, even if you can't be spending time working on a new thing or an, a harder thing. Um, but I think as entrepreneurs, which all of us really are, you kind of have to be on on a regular basis doing the business side of stuff and just making sure you're covering that and being personable and all those things.
0: So I, 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 I sort of want to dig a little bit deeper into this. Uh, maybe we can talk about, like, what's a typical day look like for you? I'm fascinated by this because I, I Like you said before, a lot of people put a lot of timing into their playing and they're like, oh, man, I don't have time to like go out and send all these emails and blah, 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 which I mean, I think is an excuse. But um, what's a what's a typical day look like for you in terms of balancing all this stuff? Um,
1: definitely days vary a ton, but I, I think like you, uh, I'm a fairly early riser. Um, And so typically, I am on my laptop taking care of some things by about 630 in the morning. Um, And that way, I can get a lot of things knocked out early. Uh, What Tim Ferriss might say, you know, uh, call some of the, um, you know, he kind of splits between creative work and the admin work i don't remember the terms that he uses and um i do really like the idea of doing creative work for yourself first before uh, kind of the the business admin stuff but i found for me most of the time especially when i'm home i can get some admin type stuff taken care of really really early uh, for a couple of reasons first of all um Not many other musicians who I might otherwise be working or dealing with are awake at that hour, (laughs) Um, so there are very few distractions on a on a personal side of things. And then some of the companies I work with now, some publishing companies and such, are on the East Coast. So being in Portland, Oregon, I'm already a couple of hours behind everybody. So if I wait until uh, typical musician hours to wake up and get into things, I'm you know already connecting with them about the time they're closing for the day. So um, so I typically get that stuff done early, and if there's time after that, just do some some pad work. If I'm heading off to teach somewhere, then I'm normally getting there early enough to spend time on uh, an instrument there before practicing. Recently, it's been diving into the Rick's Licks book a lot by Rick Gratton. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I t- try to focus on just one or two things. Typically I have some hand thing that I'm working on and some drum set thing that I'm working on. And I let myself stay on that one or two things for quite a while. I think Thomas Lang had talked about it on one of your podcasts a while back, the idea of picking three things and doing nothing but those for three months. Um, and I kind of try to do that because I'm normally pulling ideas up that I really want to be applying on some gig that I'm doing. So, uh, yeah, I, I end up normally getting some kit and hand time in throughout the day, depending on where I'm headed to. Um, and then I have little stretches of time where I don't get to hit that stuff at all. So I definitely try to, uh, I don't feel like there's always a hundred percent, you know, magic balance between those two, but I take advantage of any time that I can be doing the, the practice because I know there are plenty of times, especially with traveling when I'm not able to.
0: And I, you know, and this is just my opinion, but I think that as you're when you're younger, when you're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, uh, I think you have to – the the majority of your work has to go into your playing. So I think that's when you're spending five, six, seven, eight hours a day behind the craft to really get you to a level, maybe not to mastery, but to at least to where you've, you're very proficient at the instrument. And then I think, again, my opinion, as you start to get older, you can – sort of keep a lot of your playing in maintenance mode. You can continue to grow, but I think you can do that with less time behind the kit and focus more on the business side of things and the the career side of things. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like I guess mentioned before the maintenance thing ends up being important and I think I think when you're busy performing that like I know that I have a pretty good idea. I obviously always want to be growing as a player, but I do have a pretty good idea of what is necessary for the given gigs that I'm playing. And so the things I'm able to go into practices into practice sessions more focused than I used to be in the past, because I know exactly what it is that I want to be able to accomplish at some point here down the road for the gigs that I'm playing. Um, And so, yeah, there's the maintenance aspect that I think is more important for sure and the business building aspect, which, like you said, is more important than it would have been in the past when I was younger. And just being able to learn to go into your practice is more focused, I think, is really important. Having that goal so you're not just going in there and amusing yourself for a while or just working on various things that maybe aren't applicable to what you're playing. Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I like the difference of separating sort of play time and practice time. So I always say, like, I don't care if you go in and and play drums four hours a day and play all of your fun licks and and all the stuff that you like playing and you enjoy playing and you're just grooving along and all that, but don't count that as practice time. Right. You know, like, that's, okay, that's, I look at it like work and play. Like, okay, that's your play time behind the kit. Now it's time to get to work. That's your, that's your, the equivalent of, like going to your job and sitting on Facebook for three hours I'm like, well, I was at work for three hours that no, you weren't, you were on Facebook.
1: Yeah. I, I constantly drilling into students that idea that if you're really practicing on something hard, it won't sound very good and you'll sound like an amateur. I mean, I still, I, I love that I have a little electronic kit uh, as well as the acoustic one down at a uh, teaching studio that I hit regularly because the things that I end up sitting down to work on, sound horrendous and I love just being able to be the only person that's actually hearing them in my earbuds. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you're like, oh man, I hope nobody walks in here and hears me playing this thing. <laughs> right. I'm supposed to be the drum teacher at this place. They're gonna think I'm horrible. <laughs> sound like tennis shoes in a dryer. <laughs> exactly. There was there was one thing I wanted to tell you about that I brought up on a podcast before. I just think it's an interesting concept of you sort of going back to like the dashboard playing and all that. And then I want to get into specific practice techniques, but um right. And you may have heard this, that they took three people with with basketballs and they had them shoot free throws. And well, one group they had shoot free throws, one group they didn't have them do anything, and one group they had uh, just think about making free throws. That's all they had to do. And uh, over an extended period of time, and then they came back and tested the people and the people who... The people who shot the free throws obviously got a little bit better by a small percentage. The people who didn't didn't get any better at all, obviously. And the people who thought about making the baskets improved more than any of the groups. Wow. Which is really amazing. And, you know, just the power of the mind and and all of the little things that you're doing day in and day out that you don't feel like, you know, are real. you're not practicing, but you're like, you know, doing paradiddles on your leg or, or whatever, like all that stuff adds up after a while. It's the cumulative effect of all that. So if you can sort of develop those habits, I think it's definitely a good thing to do.
1: Yeah. And that, that aspect of vi- visualization, which I can't say right now, uh, the visualizing is, uh, it's is a hard work. <laughs> definitely, uh, visualizing is extremely important. And, uh, you know, whether it's just seeing yourself nailing that difficult fill or rocking that gig or feeling comfortable when you stand in front of a group at a school doing your first clinic or something like that it's extremely valuable
0: well they say that uh man i i don't know why i keep giving all these examples but i'm really interested in this so i want to keep talking about it selfishly uh but they say guys nascar drivers watch film and you know watch the track for days before the track or before the race, because they want to memorize it and golfers go out and they survey the golf course and they walk around so that these guys know every single inch of the track or the field or whatever they're, whatever they're going to do. And it's just like it, they've already, it, they've already been there when they go out to actually play.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think you're making me want to just go snare, stare at my snare drum head the rest of the day.
0: Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about uh, specific practice routines. What is what does your practice routine look like now and how do you suggest that people practice? And, you know, like I talk about this a lot in the podcast because, you know, Mark's idea of this one thing may work for this person and Thomas Lang's idea of this one thing may work and Benny's idea of this one thing may work. And then say, oh, I can put all three of these things together and then I have Nick's practice routine or whatever. Right, 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 right.
1: Um yeah, it definitely varies for me. I just try to always have a goal when I'm sitting down. So, you know, I'll throw it into a log and that way if I do get a little sidetracked, I will uh, get myself back on. I always do some warm-up, you know, I'm always uh, getting my students to start off with some warm-ups and I normally try to cycle through everything from just some simple, common finger control exercises, doing uh, singles, you know, sixteenth sa- playing single strokes into just, uh, right hand and then reverse that so I'm leading with the left hand um, try to do some finger stuff try to do some wrist stuff um, with and without a natural bounce so I can kind of a uh, be able to make sure that I'm not limiting myself to only being able to play fast uh, doubles and things when I'm on something bouncy like a snare drum I really want to make sure I can also just control it with the wrist so I can play on loose floor toms and things like that um, and then kind of moving into larger molar-type exercises. So I try to kind of mix up the hand technique stuff. And then I really love playing through any of the Charlie Wilcoxon stuff, whether it's uh, All-American Drummer. So you have those 150 solos or the rudimental swing solos and things like that. Uh, and that's just great. Keeps some reading. Keeps me so hard. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, it keeps me phrasing some things in ways that I don't normally on gigs that I play. Um, and um, yeah, so I always spend some time on that stuff. And then as far as what I'm working on, kit wise, just can really vary. Like I said, right now, I, I've been kind of knee deep in Rick Gratton's, Rick's Licks books uh, or book for a while again, which is something I hit ages ago. Um, and I'll, I'll honestly spend. I'll spend a couple of weeks of practicing on one of his examples, just because I try to milk it for as much as I can. So I try to find my own ways to phrase things, um, revoicing a little pattern on the kit or, you know, taking a six note pattern and playing it as three groups of two. So I'm, you know, in more of a duple like eighth or 16th feel and then the opposite two groups of three. So I'm playing that six note pattern as triplets and I just try to get as much mileage As I can out of any given idea. So I'll sit on something for quite a while. Um, And other times, you know, a while back I was uh, doing a a boat gig that had me on a boat for a couple of weeks. And it was great because I had way more downtime than I normally do. So I got way more practicing than I normally do. And would just, my goal would be to play through each of the melody pages of the new breed book with any given. And, you know, I would just sit at a super slow tempo, 50, 60 beats per minute, and just work myself all the way through there, forcing a limb like my right foot to do some stuff that I don't normally do, just at a nice slow tempo to build some muscle memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I have the same routine aside from the hand stuff, uh, each uh, practice, but I do tend to have the same routine for a stretch of time, for a couple of weeks. I and got then. You. And then it'll definitely change depending on what it is that I'm trying to work on uh and a lot of times it's gig focused um but when, yeah that's when
0: you were talking about revoicing, were you talking about regrouping or or revoicing too like moving it maybe like permutating it or or you're changing your jump off points or yeah, take,
1: taking taking a, a sticking that yeah, you know I might work through you know in Gratton's book and just finding different voices to play it on on the drum set. So not necessarily sticking with the the same combination of snare, hi hat, tom that he has uh, in the, uh, any given phrase. Okay, but just trying to find other ways to play it around. Um, and uh, it's something I always really try to get students to do, just because you're not always. Most of the time, students are almost never playing the exact same setup that a book is suggesting. Um, so you know, a book like the is, chest,
0: the the uh, uh, Newbery, yeah, where the you new breed. Go. Uh, It's the Chester. I always call it the Chester book. I couldn't think of the the actual name of it. And it's like, play this on hi hat four. <laughs> Come on, exactly. You've got multiple hi hats, a couple of floor toms, and <laughs> yeah. wow, that's awesome. Um, that book you know, is amazing, by the way. I love that oh. book.
1: Yeah, the New Breed book is just fantastic. I, I use it all the time for different things. And, um, uh, yeah, you, you know, you need to find ways to work things into your own setup. And I I also think it's really important to revoice things in multiple ways. Like I said, just because you can get more mileage out of that thing. It's not just this one rote pattern that you learn. This is the only way you play it. You know, you can get, you can get a lot more creative with it. And also... I know for myself traveling around I'm playing kit du jour all the time so sometimes right. I've got my drums many times I don't and every time different number of drums different sizes different setup and you want to get yourself to a point where the musical ideas that are in your head are able to come out no matter what you're sitting on so you're not you know you don't look at a drum set and go oh crap man I can't do any of my stuff because this guy's only got one rack tom
0: yeah <laughs> What oh man, what am I gonna do with all my licks now?
1: Exactly. And where'd they go? <laughs> uh
0: there's so I'm I'll give an example of, of one of the things I do and then I'd like to go back and and have you give an example too, because I think that like opening up this world of like you said, of revoicing or, or changing stickings and things like that is I think is I think for me when I learned that you could actually do that it totally opened up my world. And I was like, oh my God, like how did I never think of any of this stuff? So like something simple I would do would be to just, I would take a paradiddle, right? And you're either whatever, just playing it on the snare. And then the first step is obviously just changing the the voicings, as you say, like moving it to moving your right hand to the tom or moving your left hand to the hi-hat or something like that. And then you start moving it around the kit, maybe move your right hand to the ride. And then what I've done from there is, taking it and and what I call jump off points is instead of starting it on the E or starting it on the one starting it on the E so now you have a paradiddle that's starting on the E and then you have a paradiddle starting on the E with your right hand on the Tom then you have a paradiddle starting on E with your right hand on the Tom and your left hand on the hi-hat or something like that and so you have like like you're saying get it, milking it for everything it has like a thousand different variations that you can do with one thing And it's like okay, now let's now let's put an accent somewhere, and then start that whole process all over again. So it's literally like thousands of of different uh, combinations that you can have from one thing, and then it's like all right, now let's take it and do it with a double paradiddle, and then you know, and then an inverted pattern, and then like it it's endless.
1: Yep. It totally is. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you 100%. There are so many, uh, you know, I, what I talk to students about are what I call treatments mm-hmm. and taking an idea that you have and applying these little treatments. And almost every one of them that I use with students are just borrowed from other fantastic players. So um, we have... And it's a way to do exactly that. Take a little idea that you might already have. A student comes in and, like, oh, dude, check out this thing I did. And I'm like, that's cool. Okay. What would Mark Giuliano do with that? And um, uh, so, you know, he talks about his uh, little loop, which goes from eighth notes to triplets to sixteenths to triplets. So you take a little pattern that a student has, and even if you're not revoicing it, playing it on different sounds, you take that little four or five or six note pattern that you've worked up and you play through it at an eighth note rate for two bars and then speed it up so it's over the top of a triplet rate, which definitely feels very different, and then go into a 16th rate and then back to a triplet rate. And so you kind of start to master that and then um, go, okay, cool. You Kind of got a little bit of a Mark Juliana treatment idea there. And then you take that same idea and kind of like you were suggesting there, apply, you know, what I call the Garibaldi treatment to it. Mm-hmm. And so you start doing the permutation thing and shift, shift it over so that you're starting an eighth note later and then another eighth note later and go through that and then go back in between and go, okay, now we're going to do the 16th notes. And, um, that's, that's similar to a concept that I learned when I took a lesson from Bob Moses out of the new England conservatory in Boston one time. And he talks about, um, uh, departure and resolution points, right? And that sounds kind of similar to maybe your concept there. And so, taking a phrase that you have and allowing yourself to be able to start and end that phrase at any point along what he would call the grid, or you know, we'd call like you know any any subdivision, mm-hmm. um, and y- you can really kind of stretch and compress things by doing that. Um, so, yeah, I think that taking there's so many ways between revoicing and just finding, you know, another Tom to move this hand to or taking these things that you kind of feel are kind of quintessential quintessential elements of somebody else's playing and find ways to just apply that treatment to whatever your thing is that you're doing just gives you so much more bang for your buck. You get so much mileage out of it.
0: I think one of the hard things that you had talked about uh, or you had mentioned about resolution points is – that when you, and like I said, I call them jump off points. What did you say? Starting points or? Uh,
1: Yeah. uh, Bob Moses called them departure and resolution. Okay. So
0: like the departure point, if it's the E of one, that paradiddle, obviously it, let's just say you're playing a paradiddle. It's not going to resolve the way that it normally would at the end of the measure. Right. You know, it's not going to end even like it's, it takes, it's going to take how many bars to, to resolve, you know, it'll take, what, seven bars to resolve.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely things, you know, start, start going over the bar line and such. So you you come out to your crash symbol, for example, at the end of a fill in a spot, that's not normally where you'd comfortably do it.
0: Right. And I think that, that most people will bail and they'll make it end on, you know, crash on one. (laughs) Right. And, and I think that it's important to, to, if you're going to play some of this stuff to let it resolve naturally. So you can hear, the full resolution of that whole entire thing that you're playing, so you really understand it, and then from there you're like, okay, now I can, I can bail out of this anytime I want and get back into it if I want to. But like, I think people bail prematurely is what I, all I was trying to say.
1: Oh yeah, I mean that you know, allowing yourself to to let a phrase like that fully develop, even when you've started in a different spot, definitely just gives you so much more creative freedom in your phrasing so you know if you are doing a solo over a vamp you can let things go over the bar line intentionally you can suggest metric modulation and things like that because yeah you don't always have to have things starting nor ending on one you know you can let let things go over the bar line and just opens up your playing so much
0: Mm -hmm. i agree so let's talk about the the books that you've written and you've written a bunch of books and you just recently came out with the, with the 10,000 hour practice book. So uh, let's, let's sort of go through your, your, uh, what is it? Your, you're not your disc. What is it? Your bookography? What is it? I
1: don't know. Maybe what is that?
0: Your catalog. Let's call it your catalog. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh,
1: Sure. What do you want to know about?
0: So um, I know that you've worked, so you do a lot of work with, um, with Alfred, Right. Yeah, yeah so now how does how does that work do they do do you just establish a relationship with them pitch some ideas to them and and started working with them or did they approach you or i because the reason why i ask is i think that a lot of people have ideas for books and and want to get them published or want to work with people who are writing books or
1: yeah absolutely um uh, you know it was a rather organic process actually um I actually, uh, quick story, Um, ages ago, I had studied a little bit while I was in Minneapolis as well with Marv Dahlgren, one of the co-authors of the four-way coordination book, and when I had moved out west, I had a handwritten book of his called Hi-Hat Control that wasn't published, and... I would started doing some finale notation handouts for students and such, but I realized I wanted to get better at that skill. So I ended up using his hi-hat control book as a guinea pig, just as content to kind of get better at using the software. So I typed his book up and ended up back in Minneapolis and gave it to him gave it back to him a type of version for his 83rd birthday and it was this great drummers round table hanging out in St. Paul, Minnesota with him and Gordy Knutson and Dave Stanek and, uh, and a former student of mine and um, ended up giving that to him for his 83rd birthday and he opened it up and saw it was annotated for the first time and Dave Stanek was at the table and ended up approaching me and saying that he had a book idea that he wanted some help with. So. Uh, Long story short, I ended up doing the music notation for his book, Mastering the Tables of Time, uh, that won, I think it was the 2009 Modern Drummer Reader's Poll. Mm -hmm. And Alfred ended up coming on board and distributing his book uh, after it became so successful. And then shortly thereafter, the other author of Four Way Coordination, Elliot Fine, he and Walfredo Reyes Sr. decided to collaborate on a book. And they brought Dave Stanek on board to kind of do some editing and help them bring their ideas together. And he was just really great bringing me on board. He basically said he would do it if uh, I could come on board as well and help in the way that I did for his. So uh, he and I ended up kind of editing that book and co-directing the DVD shoot down at Drum Channel with Walfredo and um so that ended up being the first time my book, my name was really on the cover of a book as a co Um, and then, yeah, like you'd mentioned, you know, there, there, a relationship was established and got to know some of the crew over there and started reaching out and pitching some ideas. And as is always the case, some, some fly, some don't, um, but you have that occasional hit. And, um, so yeah, we put out the two in one drummer book with Walfredo and Dave and Elliot Mm -hmm. And then, since then, uh, this year, uh, a book of mine, Solo in Style, came out, which is six drum set solos for beginning to intermediate players. And last year, Dave Black and I co-wrote Alfred's Drum Set Method book two. It's a follow-up to their 25-year-old beginning drum set method.
0: I think that's Uh, the best-selling book of all time, right?
1: Yeah, the the drum—it's the best-selling drum set method. I think in their 25 years, I think they'd sold about a quarter of a million copies, which mm-hmm. for a music instructional book it is kind of insane. Right. Um, and yeah, it's just been an absolute treat to be involved with those guys.
0: And then after that, you wrote—you uh, sent me the Slam and Simon book, which is a which is a kids drum instruction book. And then you wrote another book called I Want to Be a Drummer, right? Which is yep. which is that's real. That's for really young children just teaching them about the drums, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, the Slam and Simon books are something that I self-publish and that his first book, which is on rock and roll drum beats, is um, illustrated and that is available now in English and Spanish. Um, nice. And then I Want to Beat a Drummer book is published by Blue Manatee Press out in Cincinnati and it is a straight up little children's board book. So a little... Book for toddlers, thick cardboard, almost chewable pages, and it's just a little story of a kid that got started like most of us did, banging on things uh, at home, and uh, put his first drum set together. And that's been a lot of fun because I've had a couple of visits, bookstore and music store visiting, you know, reading the book to kids, and it's
0: been it's been a treat. You know what? I I am gonna get that book for my nephew. Nice. Yeah, my nephew is, uh, he just turned three, and my brother's a drummer. That's why I'm a drummer, because I did everything that my older brother did. (laughs) And uh, he, you know, he drums at his house and all that stuff. So, and they always go down and play it. And I have a six year old and a three year old nephew. So, yeah, I'm going to get that for him for Christmas. (laughs) That's awesome. Perfect. Um, Let's talk about the 10,000 hour practice journal uh, that you created. You and I talked a, a little bit about it off air, but just explain the 10,000 hour principle first. And I think I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast, but just talk about that principle first and then talk about the concept of this journal. I think it's great. Like I said, I wanted to sort of do something like this myself and then you did it. And I was like, yes, it's done because ideas are cool and all, but when you actually do it, it's a lot better. Oh yeah. Thanks. It's, it's been a
1: fun little project as well. I've had students kind of guinea pigging this idea for a while. You know, I'd started some students on practice logs a long time ago. Um, but there's definitely this probably not all too uncommon concept of 10,000 hours to mastery um guys like Malcolm Gladwell and Robert Greene and other authors have definitely popularized it even more in recent years um and it's just this idea that it takes 10,000 hours ish to um of focused work or practice in an area whether it's drumming or painting or anything to essentially master it, kind of become an expert in that area. And, um, I am the first person to say that that 10,000 hours is a, an extremely arbitrary number. And I don't think that that's, uh, you know, uh, exactly accurate. Um, and I don't think it ever could be for everybody. And I think as you get older and you've tried different things in life, I think you do shortcut that somewhat because we all have experiences from various things that contribute to us learning other things faster, or even I've seen adults start music later in life and they've already been huge music fans for a long time and listened to drummers and air drum along with stuff and they're sometimes able to get good pretty fast because they're they're definitely bringing hours in some regard to the table already, Um, but I created the guide as a way to kind of track that. There's another great book called The Musician's Way that introduces just... A graph idea, among other things, but they have a graph that just keeps track of your practice hours. And I started using that. Had students use that, and just kind of combined a bunch of things: the practice logs that I've kept and had students keep in the past, and then this idea of tracking 10,000 hours, um, all kind of combined together. So the the practice log, if you're practicing daily, the practice log. Tracks about three months worth of practice, and there's there are graph pages in the back so you can visually see exactly how much you're practicing. So you can see those days when it drops down to zero, and uh, then the covers of the book have space to do the math and write in how much, you, how many hours you have in that book, as well as how many hours you have cumulative with you know each of the logs that you've maybe worked through already, and also how many you have left and. Like I said, the ten thousand hours isn't uh, i think a you know steadfast you know like uh number for everybody and for every scenario, but I think having some sort of goal is great, and so it, just having that out there is a motivating factor i've learned
0: I like it man so where can where can you pick it up? You can get it on Amazon, I guess.
1: Yep. You can totally order that on Amazon and yeah, that just came out about a month or so ago. So it's been a lot of fun. Actually it came out while I was at PASIC. So nice. in the beginning of November and it's been a lot of fun. I've been having people send pictures of it. They've gotten it for playing instruments or painting or just all sorts of things. It's been great.
0: Well, I know I'm, I'm making a note of it now because I got some shopping to do when we're done because I'm going to buy one of these. Two. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. Um, I could, because I I agree with the idea of journaling I I and like you said the ten thousand hours is a rough sort of loose estimate but I think it at least prepares people to say hey look this isn't gonna happen overnight it's something that you have to realize that you know you have to put the time in over a very long period of time to to get to where you want to go and journaling that and and keeping track of your progress to where the days that you say man I suck I'm not getting any better and then you look back and you're like oh actually I used to do this exercise at 50 beats a minute and now I'm doing it at 90 so I'm getting better
1: exactly and that's you know the log kind of lays out you know the the obvious things like you know the date and time that you're practicing but also I think it's important to keep track of the the headspace uh you know or you know physical uh, space that you're in when you're practice, so there's a little spot to just basically note energy level things like that and then set your goals and then thumbs up and thumbs down because like you said it is great to go thumbs up wow I'm playing this 20 beats per minute faster than I was previously and then thumbs down you know maybe there are things you're realizing your right foot is tensing up because you're doing this too fast you need to slow down or whatever and a little space for notes so it. Having any sort of log, regardless of what sort of hour time frame you're shooting for, <clears throat> is just so valuable for that reason because you can look back and really recognize your own progress and give yourself the pat on the back when needed and then also look back and see where maybe you've been failing to pay attention to your own notes and slow things down where, they, where you should and such.
0: Well, I think Benny Greb said if you – or it was Benny Greb. He said it on the podcast. He said if you show yourself progress, the need for motivation becomes non-existent.' I like it. Yeah. So where can people go to find out more information about you? Where can they interact with you? Where's the best places to find you? I'll link up to it all in the show notes, but just so the people who are listening now, where can they find you? Sure. Um, On the interwebs. No, I don't yeah, need like your I don't need your home address or anything <laughs>
1: you can find me at uh, no uh, my website is powerspercussion.com and they can definitely uh, visit there drop a line I encourage people to drop a line on the contact page and just say hey um, and there are certainly links from there to uh, all the social media channels and there's a products page on there that has the books and other compositions and such I've done um, but pretty much everywhere social media wise. So I'm on Facebook and um, Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Mark powers on both of those and definitely encourage people to drop a line and say, Hey,
0: Awesome, and Mark, I want to publicly thank you for one for everything that you do for the drumming community. The things that uh, that you've that you've done for me, sending me your books, uh, converting my my book into the Kindle version. You have been very supportive of the podcast, and I just want to publicly thank you for that. I, I sincerely appreciate it. You've been very supportive, and and I don't take that lightly. So uh, I just want to thank you for that.
1: Well, thanks, man, and again, thanks for having me on here. The the value that you contribute to this community is crazy i mean well over 200 podcasts now you're you're kind of bringing a lot of amazing players and concepts to to the masses so it's it's great work
0: well thank you i do appreciate that i appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today thanks for being part of the podcast uh and i will be talking to you soon absolutely man thanks all right mark thank you So there you have it. That's Mark Powers. And for links to everything that we talk about, the books, the the videos, he does some TEDx talks, all sorts of stuff, I'll link up to it all. And you can find it at drummersresource.com forward slash session 229. Also, you may or may not know, but I started a Patreon account. A Patreon account is a way for you to donate to Drummer's Resource on a monthly, ongoing basis, and donations literally start at a dollar a month and go as high as you want them to go, and there's also some cool prizes that go along with that. So, if you get any value out of this podcast, and you continue to get value out of this podcast, I ask that you please go to drummersresource.com forward slash support. That's drummersresource.com forward slash support and spread some holiday cheer uh, coming to drummers resource to help support it, help the the podcast grow, pay for expenses, hire new people, get some new gear, things like that. So again, if you get value from this podcast, I ask that you please consider going to drummersresource.com forward slash support and supporting the efforts that are going on over here. And until the next podcast, uh, what do I say? Keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.